0: Our Heavenly Father, we come by the power of your Holy Spirit. We come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we have been singing a praise to you, Lord, and we have been praying to you. We have been lifting our voices, Lord, to, uh, to speak to you about your greatness and your glory. And Lord, now we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would speak to us. Lord, we believe that your word is living and active we believe that it's not just some ancient document that was written thousands of years ago that we can study merely for historical matters, Lord, but that it is your very word that when your word is read, that we are indeed hearing your voice. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a sense of expectation right now, that you would open our ears to hear you speak to us, that you would open our hearts to be open to be transformed by your power and your glory pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Psalm 45. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. Our church is called Harvest Bible Chapel. Bible's our middle name. And so we make a big deal about God's Word because God's Word is what reveals to us who God is. And so things will make a lot more sense if you're able to follow along uh, right now. So just raise your hand or holler at an usher as they're making their way Uh, up uh, the aisle. Uh, My name's Ted Duncan, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Harvest, and uh, I still feel like a guest speaker here. And uh, we've been here uh, about a month, and so if you're here at Harvest and, and you've been visiting for the last uh, few weeks, you're like, I don't quite feel at home yet. Well, listen, that's, that's true for all of us. Uh, and so we've got people who are here from Discovery Christian Community Church. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. We have people who have come from Harvest Bible Chapel Oakville, and there's, we've got people who have, yeah, Amen. And we've got, people who have come, we've got people who have come down from Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton as we've uh, relocated here. And we are all get to know one another. We're all trying to figure out how we can serve and how we can get involved. And uh, we're just really excited about what God has done. Still can't believe that I'm standing here speaking to you in this place. Like how amazing is this? And may we never lose sight of the great things that God has done in our midst. The title for today's message is The Royal Wedding. Oh, we just had one of those, didn't we? On May 19th, 2018, uh, Harry married Meghan. And all of the talk about who was there and what they wore and, and how the ceremony uh, went down. And uh, just a few years earlier, April 29, 2011, it was William and Kate's turn. And that was sort of the resurgence of interest in, uh, in a royal wedding. Uh, some of us are old enough to remember July 29, 1981, Charles and Diana, and that storybook a wedding, the 25-foot train in, on Diana's dress. Uh, there's a, a few of us here who are old enough to remember November 20, 1947, when Princess Elizabeth uh, married uh, Philip Mountbatten. Uh, now for me, just w- with, with my generation, I, I'm not that interested in the, in the current Uh, uh, royal weddings. And in 1981, I was only three years old. When I think about the royal wedding, when I think about the wedding that really captured my attention for the first time, that wedding happened on July 16th, 1988. That royal wedding was when Wayne Gretzky married Janet Jones. And uh, we had this magazine uh, around our house, McLean's Magazine. They called that wedding in Edmonton the royal uh, wedding. You see, royal weddings, they're a big deal, aren't they? Uh, there's a lot of talk about the bride and what she's wearing and the guests and what they're wearing and the ceremony and the, the music and, and all of the we, royal weddings are a huge deal. They capture the, the attention, the imagination of almost the entire world. But royal weddings were, were not just a, a, a big deal in our culture. The, the royal wedding was, was a massive event in ancient Israel as well. A uh, Psalm 45 actually is is a psalm that was written specifically for a royal wedding. It begins with the introductory notes. It says, It was written to the choir master according to the lilies, a masculine, the sons of the sons of Korah, a love song. Now we all know what a love song is. Uh, we've talked uh, over the last couple of weeks that we've been studying this collection of psalms written by the sons of Korah. They were the doorkeepers in the temple of God. They were also the, the worship leaders, most notably in the time of Jehoshaphat. And, and we've also known that a maskil is probably some sort of musical term. But we've never come across this phrase that says it, it was written according to lilies. That same statement is written at the beginning of Psalm 60, Psalm 69, and Psalm 80, according to lilies. Now the best guess about why lilies is is brought up here is that lilies was probably a popular melody to a song. And so these these psalms all had the same melody. The the, the lyrics fit with the same melody. Tune, just like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and Ba, Ba, Black Sheep all have the same melody. I know I just blew some of your minds. (laughs) It's a melody, it's actually a melody written by by Mozart. But the lyrics fit with that particular tune. And so this psalm is is written according to uh, lilies. Verse 1 begins by saying, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This, this is a royal wedding. He is speaking to a king. The king is getting married. We don't know in particular which king it is. That the, the king's name is not recorded for us here in the psalm. But, but chances are that this psalm was, was sung or read at, at all, of the, all of the royal weddings after it was written. And... Just just like a wedding ceremony today sort of begins with the groom and the officiant at the front. And then the bride who's been getting ready all morning and into the afternoon comes down the aisle. And then afterwards there's a big celebration where there's toasts and speeches. Weddings in in our culture have these, these moments that you can always expect. Well Psalm 45 flows in that same way. It begins with the groom. Then it talks about the bride getting prepared and then coming uh, towards the groom. And then there's sort of a blessing or a toast or a speech to encourage the couple at the end of the psalm. And uh, This afternoon at at 4.15, Lindsay and I are going to a a banquet hall in Mississauga because I'm officiating a wedding. It's going to be a Filipino wedding, all of the Filipino cultural aspects. I've done a couple of them now with with a a veil going over the head of the the couple, the symbol, the, the covering, the blessing, the love of God and a cord tied around them, not too tight. Uh, to, to symbolize uh, their union uh, uh, together, and it makes the shape of, uh, of eternity very, very uh, beautiful uh, wedding uh, ceremony and uh, symbolism. But today, as we go through the psalm, we're just going to sort of follow uh, the, the steps of, of how a wedding would unfold. Maybe how your wedding uh, uh, unfolded, or how you would hope yours uh, will unfold someday. It begins with the description of the groom. And he, he's sort of the first one to after he seats his mother and, and his father and then takes his, his place at the, at the front of, of the church. It begins with everyone's eyes on the groom. Verse 2 says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you. The first thing that they notice is, Well, he's all dressed up. And how, how handsome he is. Now, this king, he's a king of Judah. He would have been a descendant of Solomon, a descendant of David. Now, there aren't a whole lot of descriptions in the Old Testament about people's appearances, especially of the men in the Bible. But David, on a number of occasions, is, is recognized as being exceptionally handsome. In 1 Samuel chapter of 17, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 16, right after Samuel had just said, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He only looks at the heart after he, he rejected all of David's brothers. He says, God doesn't look at appearance. The first thing Samuel says when he sees David is, that guy's handsome. And then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, Goliath, Who's about to try to kill that guy? He's got the spear ready and the short and the... the, 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 the he's he's bloodthirsty and he's hurling insult. And he says, whoa, that guy's he's a good looking dude. And so heredity, you know, the, 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 the genetics have been passed down. David was handsome. And the, the king here is described as being the most handsome of the sons of men. But more importantly... The psalmist goes on to describe, not his outward appearance, but his his character. He says, grace is poured upon your lips. He speaks words of grace. If someone were to write a song about you, and were to have a line in there, in the song about you, about the kinds of words that you use, and the kind of tone that you speak in, If your parents were to write a song about you, teenager, about the way that they speak to you and the way that you speak to them, how would you describe that? Husbands, if your wife were to write a song about you and the kinds of words that you use and the tone that you use, would they use the word grace? Would would your friends use the word grace to describe Words is, is grace poured upon your lips? Or is it annoyance or frustration or sarcasm or harshness or apathy or just saying nothing at all? Our words have so much power. And what the psalmist wants to point out here is the power of this king's words he has all of this authority whatever he says people have to do it but this king doesn't use his power and authority to wield it to put other people down he speaks words of grace he goes on in verse three he's not not just all talk he says gird your sword on your thigh almighty one In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. God describes his king as a As a warrior, the psalmist here describes him putting a sword on his thigh, how his arrow goes right into the heart of his enemies. He is a warrior. God is okay with fighting as long as the fighting is happening for the right reasons. This king is going out to battle and he's being supported and encouraged by the psalmist. Yes, go out into battle. But go out into battle for the right reasons, verse 4. For truth and meekness and righteousness. Don't go out for selfish gain or or vain glory. Don't go out for pride or vengeance or greed or to try to build an empire for yourself. Defend the cause of the weak and the helpless. Go out and rescue. Be brave. Be courageous. Be heroic. Be heroic. This is the great and awesome king in Psalm 45 who fights for his people. Then, in a, a very quick shift in verse 6, he, he immediately speaks to the king who, who reigns beyond this king. He looks past the throne of this earthly king to the eternal king. In verse 6, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter, the scepter of your kingdom, is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, the the shifts and the transitions here are a little bit awkward. He's sort of like a, it's almost like the psalmist is someone learning how to drive a stick shift and he hasn't quite figured out the clutch and, and, and the gas and the gears. And the, it's just a little bit, he's talking about God the king and then he's back talking about the, The the, the king and what God has said about him, it's a little bit awkward, isn't it? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I'm talking about God, but then when you get to the end of verse 7, therefore God your God, he's no longer talking about God, he's talking about the the king again, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God is the ultimate king who, who, who reigns behind every ruler, especially the, someone who was reigning in his name as the king of Judah. Verse 7 says, therefore God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That, that word anointing, that's where our word Messiah comes from. Kings were anointed. When, when David became king, oil was poured On his head when a new king began to reign, a prophet would pour oil on his head to to anoint him, to set him apart. Jesus is that ultimate. We just sang about him being the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is qualified to rule and to reign. Verse 8 talks about his cologne. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And then the music... From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. As the melody of that lily song plays in the background. Verse 9, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. These are the guests who are there. People have traveled from all the surrounding nations to, to witness this glorious wedding. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Now we're introduced to the bride who, uh, at this point in verse 9, is standing beside the king. But then verse 10 is a bit of a flashback. and It it, it describes the bride getting ready. This is the next movement within the psalm. So we've had the description of the groom. Now we have the preparation of the bride. The preparation of the bride. And so you can can picture this a moment at... uh, at, at the bride's home or in a hotel room, she's getting ready and, and the maid of honor is there and the bridesmaids are there and the, the mother of the bride, they're all helping her get ready with her makeup and her hair and the dress. And as they're doing that, they're sharing little bits of advice about how to enjoy the day to its fullest. They're sharing little uh, bits of advice about how to have a long and successful marriage. And so as the preparation of of the bride's physical beauty, there's also a preparation in terms of the expectations for what it will mean for her to be a wife after making this covenant promise uh, to uh, her fiance. In verse 10 it says, Hear, o daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. So the, the psalmist is saying, Listen to my advice. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The first thing that's being said to to the bride is is forget your people and your father's house. Forget this place where you are right now. Forget the people who are around you. Move on. It it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it, to say leave your family behind. But loved ones, that is is what God has designed for marriage. Healthy marriages involve leaving and cleaving. And verse 10, this advice that's being given to to forget your father's house is is really what was described for Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. A new union is formed at a, at a wedding ceremony. That marriage relationship becomes the new primary relationship. In our Western culture, a wedding ceremonies, the, the the parents of the bride, the parents of the groom, they're given seats of honor, aren't they, right at the front. But they're sitting, aren't they? They're not standing. They're not up at the front. They don't make any vows or any promises. There is a a new union. They are down there and the new family is up here at the front. And up until this point, until these promises have been made, the most important earthly relationship on planet earth for the bride and the groom has been their relationship with their parents. They are commanded in the Bible to honor their father and their mother. And they're commanded to continue to do that when they're married. But when two people... Make vows to one another and are married. That becomes their primary relationship. Their primary sense of loyalty as this bride is being instructed. Forget your people in your father's house. Still honor them, still love them, still talk to them. But you have a new family, a new source of loyalty that's being established. Then in verse 11 it says, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Now, this, this wife in particular that's being, just, that's being spoken to, she has a unique responsibility. See, husbands are supposed to love their wives sacrificially. Wives are supposed to respect their husbands and submit to them. But there is an added layer here because this, this woman is marrying the king of Judah. And so she is, she is being told, that, you, know, you're, you may not feel like it sometimes, but he's the king. And you're going to have to bow uh, to him because he is your ruler, But in bowing to him, in taking that act of deference, in recognizing the privilege and blessing that you have in being married to the king. You might think, oh, I I don't want to bow. I I, I don't want to live in that kind of a relationship. Well, look at the benefit she's going to get from from living in a right, right relationship with the king. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. You see... She's being put in this unique, privileged place of of honor. And the people of Tyre, that was one of the wealthiest nations at the time, they are going to be seeking her favor. They are going to be looking out for her and, and wanting to get her attention, wanting to give her gifts, because she has had the privilege of marrying the king. Verse 12 describes her attire, all glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. I've never seen a a princess uh, in, in real life. The closest I ever came was July the 5th, 2003, when in the woods in Ancaster, Ontario, on the arm of my father in law Lindsay Patton came walking through the trees and listen glorious would be a word to describe how she looked on that day. She was radiant she was gorgeous she was beautiful and it's gonna sound cliche, but she's more beautiful now than ever. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And that is the beauty of marriage. You go to all of this all of this trouble to make yourself look so beautiful and so great and then if your marriage is healthy, you, you think that you look the, the most beautiful ever at that moment. That's not true. In the eyes of your spouse, you, you continue to to flourish on the inside and out. So she is described as glorious in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. She didn't wear white. Queen Victoria really started that trend in 1840. In Western cultures, people do indeed often wear a white as a sign of uh, purity and, and chastity. But in many other cultures, there's many cultures represented here. So there's many colors of uh, wedding dresses. She had a multicolored. A wedding dress. And then it says, with her virgin companions following behind her. Normally, the bridesmaids come first, right? But now they sort of come after. The bride goes first, and then they come after. I'm not sure if they walked that way back then. And then verse 15. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king with joy and gladness. The, 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 this was not sort of the, the, the somber, formal sort of wedding celebrations that that, we would, uh, that that we would come to expect. It was a party. There was joy and gladness when the bride entered into the room. And then verse 16 and 17, we have really like a, like a wedding speech or, or a toast. Verse 16 says, In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And so we've had the... Description of the groom, the preparation of the bride. Lastly, we have the expectation for the future. The expectation for the future. Now, the psalmist at the end of the ceremony, he he wants to wish the couple well, a, a bright and happy future for them. He pronounces a blessing on them. Specifically, he pronounces a blessing on the groom. It doesn't come through in English just because of the way English pronouns work, but that the the phrase your, in place of your father, shall be your sons. Those are masculine pronouns in Hebrew. And so he's, he's, he's no longer talking to the groom. He's talk, sorry, no longer talking to the bride. He's talking uh, to the groom about the expectations for, for his future, for, for their future together. And notice what he says. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. Now, if there was anyone who would want to look back to their fathers, it would be a king of Judah. If anyone would want to look back, it would be to look back to Solomon and all of his greatness and his wisdom and his wealth. It would be to look back at David and all of the great deeds that he performed by God's power. But the psalmist says, listen, as great as your heritage is, I want to encourage you to look forward. In the place of your fathers will be your sons, and this is why. Because a promise had been made to David. A promise had been made to David about one of his descendants. And this king is standing in that line. And the psalmist says, remember the promise. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. This was the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. One of the descendants of David. One of the kings of Judah who would come down the line. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish his kingdom forever. Now there was a sense in which Solomon fulfilled that. He did build a a physical house. But God was speaking about a, a broader, more spiritual house. It was fulfilled in part in Solomon. But Solomon didn't reign forever. It's pointing to a future king. And so every time a a new heir was born, the question among the people of Judah was, is this going to be the one? Will this be the chosen king who will not just rule for, for a little while, but will rule forever? It says in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. You know, I just feel bad for Prince Charles. His mom just won't die. He looks older than she does now. She has been ruling for multiple generations, hasn't she? He's only going to get like half a generation in. But this king that's coming will reign. The name will be remembered in all generations. And he will not just reign locally in Judah. Look at at how verse 17 says. Therefore all nations will praise you forever and ever. This great and awesome king that was promised to David. That is referred to here in Psalm 45. That ultimate awesome king is Jesus Christ. You know, in an obscure little passage that I was reading in my devotions this week, people were questioning Jesus. And, What's with the party atmosphere? How come everyone's always happy and feasting around? Me? Oh, the Pharisees over here, they're the spiritual ones, and they seem really somber and stoic and really serious, and you're over here having a good time. Even John's disciples are fasting, and they, they, they just look sad because that's what being spiritual means. And this is what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 5, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is here? Jesus lived as a bachelor all of his life. He lived the most obedient life, the most full life, the most God-glorifying life as a single person. Yet he referred to himself as the bridegroom. His cousin John the Baptist I said this, they were asking him, are you the Christ? He said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him, the friend of the bridegroom. John's like, no, 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 there's a wedding coming, but I'm just the best man. I love Jerry Seinfeld's thing about the best man. If he's the best man, why is everyone making such a big deal about the groom? He says, no, no, I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. Rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, therefore the joy of mine is now complete. John says the bridegroom is here. Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. He is that ultimate king that is promised, who will rule over all generations, whose name will be great among all of the nations. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, take a look at it here at the screen. Remember that part in Psalm 45 that's just a little bit awkward? Where he's talking to God and then he's talking about the king? And Well, look, look, look what the author of Hebrews does with that passage. He's comparing Jesus with angels. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. But of the Son... Of Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That awkwardness in Psalm 45, which probably never wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense at the time that it was written, makes perfect sense when you realize that Jesus is that ultimate king. He is God, He is the Son. And God the Father, it goes on to say, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, God the Father, your God, has anointed you, God the Son, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Hebrews chapter 1, 7 and 9 shows the fulfillment of what we have in Psalm 45, which is a prophecy. It's not merely a description of one royal wedding, but it's a prediction of a great and awesome wedding. Wedding. The Apostle John, in writing the book of Revelation, look look at how he describes Jesus in Revelation 19. We already read Psalm 45, verse 4. Uh, Sorry, go, go back to Psalm 45, verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And look at the vision of Jesus in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse ride out. The one sitting is called Faithful and True for the cause of truth and righteousness. Meekness and righteousness, he judges And makes war. This is Jesus. Psalm 45 is describing. Yes it's describing an earthly king. But that earthly king was pointing to to a greater king. That ultimate son of David. That ultimate offspring of the king. Jesus Christ. And the king gets married. He was single here on earth. That's because he was waiting for his bride. Who he's going to be married to in all of eternity. Revelation 19 the same chapter. Look at this. It says hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made himself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Just like in Psalm 45. The preparation of the bride. Bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, the marriage relationship is, is, the, is the controlling metaphor that God wants to use to describe how he wants to relate to us. That promise of I will be with you, better, worse, sickness, uh, sickness health, rich or poor, all of those things, those, those promises, those are the kinds of promises God wants to make to us. And it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know that you have been invited to this marriage? You haven't just been invited as an attendee who's, who's sitting at a, at a table with some other strangers as you try to make conversation through the speeches. No, you have been invited to be part of the bride. You have been invited to clothe yourselves in righteous deeds. You have been invited to be cherished and loved and provided for and cared for and nourished by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the universe, Jesus Christ. But just like when you receive a wedding invitation in the mail, I mean back in the day you used to get another separate little card with it, right? The RSVP card that you were supposed to mail back. And now you, now you have a little URL, a little website that you're supposed to uh, to click on. I was a lot better at mailing the card back than going and and the website seems so easy. I'll just do it later. Sorry if I didn't RSVP to your wedding. Don't take it personally. I do it to everyone. The, the, The invitation has been sent out. Have you responded? Have you made a decision to say, yes, I will go. Yes, I will love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, I will receive His love that He has for me. See, Jesus came as the bridegroom, and He didn't come at first in glorious robes, smelling of fresh a cologne, with stringed instruments playing in an ivory palace. That's where He is now, but He came, born in a barn. He came and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, taught and healed and preached. But his, his robes were torn from him. He, 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 he hung on a cross in, in shame. He was beaten for our sins. He was punished because of our iniquity. He stood in our place as our substitute. He bore the wrath of God as, our, as, as a propitiation for our sin. He died and was buried and he rose again so that... We could receive the forgiveness of sins so that we could have a marriage like relationship with Him as the bride of Christ. And you can respond to that invitation today. You can respond to that invitation by recognizing that you're not dressed in righteous deeds, that you're not dressed in gold and fine linen because you've lived a perfect life. No, you are dressed in filthy rags and admitting that you are a sinner. And then believing that Jesus Christ came to save you, that he loved you, that he died for you so that he could remove your filthy rags and clothe you in this beautiful wedding garment. And then committing to following him just like that bride was told, forget everything behind you, forget your, forget your father's house. You have a new relationship now. We are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to leave whatever we had, had before and to have our primary loyalty now to, our, to be our relationship with Jesus Christ. And just like the bride was told, because he's your Lord, bow to him. We count it the greatest privilege to lift our voices, to bow on our knees, and to worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. And it's the wedding imagery that we find in Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. It's the wedding imagery that God uses to describe how we should celebrate and reflect and rejoice in the goodness of God's love. And so we're going to do that in just a moment. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you that you love your people and that you have chosen to rescue us and you have chosen to live in a covenant relationship with us to make promises to us, Lord. Thank you for inviting us to the marriage of your son. Thank you for inviting us to come and to live with you, to come and to benefit from all of the glorious privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would marvel. I pray that we would rejoice. I pray that we would be glad and celebrate that you have loved us and that you have chosen to send your son as the bridegroom for us. Lord, be with us, help us, strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.